0: (laughs) What Paul is clearly saying is that anyone is worthy of being saved. They will be saved. You can clip this at any point, right? Because I had missed missed it, sort of. That's okay. Okay.
1: I still struggle with how I should view those who have other beliefs. I'm not sure I'm ready to condemn them as wrong. I know some very good Buddhists. What is their destiny?
0: Hellfire and damnation!
1: (laughs) Okay. Yay!
0: On the other hand, any who lack those recognizable marks but have the inward heart God looks for is acceptable to God. No matter in what other ways, they may or may not be identical. I'm going to just do that last one again, because identical <laughs> is not a word.
1: That was a Biden. <laughs> Welcome to Thoroughly Equipped, a podcast for women where we compare the popular women's ministry teachings, books, conferences, Bible studies, etc. to scripture. Our focus is 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I am your host, Melba Toast. May this episode bless you and bring glory to God. Hello, ladies, and welcome back to Thoroughly Equipped. Hope all of you had a blessed holiday season. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and if you are new, welcome. Now, if you are new, we have been going through one of Jenny Allen's If Equipped Studies titled Enjoying Jesus which is a study on the spiritual disciplines. If you haven't listened to the full episode of this study, you'll want to go back and listen to that. In that episode, I present to you the study's claims on what spiritual disciplines are and why we need them, what they supposedly do for us, their purpose. And I compare their claims... scripture's teaching on the sufficiency of Christ. I basically answer the question, are there certain works that we do that will bring us closer to God, or was Christ's work sufficient to bring us close to God? It is very clear that scripture describes Christ's work as not only cleansing us, reconciling us to God, but that his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the full knowledge of the One who called us by His own glory and excellence. 2 Peter one three, Through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we have all we need for life and godliness, and now we can live and walk in His finished work by His divine power. Through the knowledge of Christ, we come to know God the Father and be filled with all that He has commanded us. I do not need to seek out solitude and silence to know God or be filled by Him. I need to walk in the knowledge of Christ and His finished work, trusting in God's promises. The only thing I would stipulate is this. Where do we come to learn and know about Christ and His work? Where do we see what God has promised? Is it subjective? Do we find Christ within? Do we receive promises through inner impressions, heart nudges, and dreams? No. All we need to inform us of Christ and to find what God has promised is in the scripture. So what of the spiritual disciplines then? Well, I say this. You want to seek out solitude and silence? Do it so you can petition God for your needs, the needs of others, to read God's word and meditate on it by studying it, reading it in context, looking at the historical background and asking what does this tell you about God and what does what you've learned mean for your life? Want to do acts of service and giving? Do it as scripture instructs you. Give out of thankfulness to God. Serve because he served and gave to you. Not to experience God or to become closer to him, but because you are close to him because of his work in Christ. Bottom line, there's a difference in teaching someone to practice spiritual disciplines to receive something than to practice the disciplines because you have already received something. Last episode... I wanted to lay a foundation for this episode, where we will be looking at the spiritual masters promoted in the Enjoying Jesus study. Enjoying Jesus teaches a light form of mysticism that we experience God through certain acts. Mysticism is the attempt of the human person to attain the ultimate reality of things and experience direct communication with the Highest. Christian mystics use Christ as their example to show them how to become united with that ultimate reality, that God, that experience direct communication with the highest so one may be conformed to Christ or put on Jesus' yoke. We saw this as the Enjoying Jesus study quoted from Dallas Willard stating that, To take on all of Jesus' yoke means to, quote, walk as he walked in the entirety of his whole life, end quote. We see this when Lauren Chandler, in Relaying Why We Need the Discipline, stated that if Jesus needed them to be connected to God, how much more do we? And so forth. So with that foundation, and if you haven't listened to the last episode, I highly suggest you do. It will help solidify what I present in this episode. But in this episode, my goal is to show you that the spiritual masters that they promote in the study are indeed Christian mystics and actually teach a panentheistic god, a false christ, an inadequate atonement, and basically a different gospel. It's going to be a long episode. But by the end, you will recognize the teachings and see the dangers in promoting these people as leaders of spiritual formation in evangelicalism today. So let's dive in, let's look at Christian mystics that If Equip Enjoying Jesus promotes as teachers of spiritual disciplines. The first one we come across is Brother Lawrence, who was a monk that lived from 1614 to 1691. Nicholas Hermann was born in the Lorraine region of France. After fighting in the Thirty Years' War, he entered a Carmelite monastery in Paris in 1640 and took the religious name, Lawrence, of the Resurrection. In the Enjoying Jesus Study for Week 2, Day 2, about prayer, we read this, In the 1600s, a French soldier named Nicholas lifted his eyes to a leafless tree in winter and realized that it awaited only the changing season for God to bring it bursting into bud. The realization of God's good sovereignty so overwhelmed him that he vowed to become a monk. In a monastery in Paris, he changed his name to Brother Lawrence. It was this Lawrence whose simple practice of acknowledging God in the humdrum activities of life, peeling potatoes, washing dishes, feeding the chickens, revolutionized the way he thought about prayer. He could practice the presence of God all the time in the everyday activities of life. Quote, there is not in the world a kind of life more sweet and delightful than that of a continual conversation with God, said Brother Lawrence. What became the most beloved classic work, the practice of the presence of God. Quote, those only can comprehend it who practice and experience it. End quote. In week two, date five, review and apply for prayer and confession, we read this quote, He does not ask much of us, merely a thought of him from time to time, a little act of Adoration, sometimes to ask for His grace, sometimes to offer Him your sufferings, at other times to thank Him for the graces past and present He has bestowed on you, in the midst of your troubles, to take solace in Him as often as you can. Lift up your heart to Him during your meals, and in company, the least little remembrance will always be the most pleasing to Him. One need not cry out very loudly He is nearer to us than we think. Quote by Brother Lawrence. Continuing on the week due day five quote, Today, what would practicing the presence of God look like for you at home, at work, at school, or out in nature? Try talking with God as you would talk to a friend without an elaborate warm-up or formulaic phrases. Can you feel his presence making each moment sacred? Let God wash dishes with you, take out the trash, prepare a PowerPoint presentation, or go to the market. Talk with him about the common stuff of life and then listen for his voice." Now, this comment from Brother Lawrence doesn't seem so bad, but if we look at the other teachings from his writings, then we come across problems. I'm going to present to you some teachings from Brother Lawrence and then let's tackle this idea of practicing the presence of God. Now, Brother Lawrence, in the book, The Practice of the Presence of God, teaches mysticism, that the divine resides within us, and so to practice the presence is to depend on feelings found within as we go about our daily business. Quote, And then it seems to him, now he's talking about himself in the third per- person here, as in effect he feels it, that this God of love satisfied with such few words, reposes again, and rests in the depth and center of his soul. The experience of these things gives him such an assurance that God is always in the depth or bottom of his soul, and renders him incapable of doubting it upon any account whatever. End quote. Page 38. Another quote is, He is within us. Seek him not elsewhere. End quote. Page 64. And another one. There are three degrees of union of the soul with God. The first degree is general, the second is virtual union, whilst the third is actual union page seventy seven. So you see from these quotes that Lawrence teaches that God resides within, that we are to only seek him by looking within and not through Jesus or the scriptures, and that we can be unified with the divine, as mysticism teaches. This book completely neglects scripture. Nothing on, one, the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross as opening the door for us into the holy places by his blood, Hebrews 10, 19-21. Basically, in other words, as Christians who have placed our faith in Christ, we live in the presence of God. We don't have to practice it. And two, the book neglects the Holy Spirit's indwelling in every believer, Romans 8, 9. The Holy Spirit is... God in us. Again, we do not, indeed, cannot practice the presence of God. We have his presence always. But what's even worse is there is no distinction between a believer and a non-believer, and that God's presence is everywhere but has a particular quality to those who are called by God. That particular quality is relational and redemptive the quality of God's presence that only applies to those who trust in Christ Jesus. Ryan Habana, in an article titled, What Shall We Practice? Wrestling with Brother Lawrence's concept of practicing the presence of God from the Critical Issues Commentary website describes the special or a particular presence of God this way. Quote, It is true that the attributes of God are evident everywhere throughout his creation. In the convicting opening chapter of Romans, Paul notes, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Romans one twenty. Yet beyond the omnipresence of God, The scriptures consistently present the reality of the special presence of God. God's special presence in his people's lives is both redemptive and relational. We see God's special presence highlighted in the establishing of the tabernacle following the Exodus. Let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I am going to show you, as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. Exodus 25, 8-9 The omnipresent Lord dwelt with Israel in a unique and special way. His presence in their midst was both relational and redemptive. God's special presence took on a radical new dynamic in the incarnation of the Son as announced by the Apostle John. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John one fourteen. The text, more literally translated, reads, The word was made flesh and pitched his tabernacle among us. The illusion is powerful. Just as God dwelled with Israel following the Exodus, he became human to dwell with us in a much more profound manner. While the special bodily presence of Jesus temporarily ceased with his ascension, he promised not to leave us alone, but would send the Spirit to be with us forever, John fourteen sixteen. 16. Those who repent and believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ receive the Holy Spirit. His presence dwells with His people to regenerate and renew, Titus 3, 5. The presence of God is with the believer forever. His presence is not dependent upon subjective feelings or even practicing His presence, but rather upon His sustaining and renewing activity. There may be times when we do not feel as if God is near, but this does nothing to undermine the reality of both His omnipresence in the world and His special presence in His children. Many problems arise if we equate the presence of God in our lives with subjective religious experience. If we continually seek to feel God's presence through contemplative practice, the result will be that we will experience further spiritual problems. This seeking will cause us to strive for feelings rather than obedience. This wrongful pursuit will shake our assurance because the little assurance we have will be based on subjective experience rather than on the historical reality of the cross. In the end, we will neglect our primary calling. Oh I do not recommend Brother Lawrence's book, as not only does it present a different God who is found within, making prayer a conversation with a subjective internal God from whom we receive revelation through inner impression and not from scripture, it also teaches a work salvation as Lawrence states many times of him, making all the satisfaction he could for all his sins. Now that's quoted from page 26, 29, and 99, as well as teaching asceticism, or severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence for religious reasons. This is how he believes one makes satisfaction for all his sins. The next Christian mystic that Enjoying Jesus quotes is Dallas Willard. And we are going to spend quite a bit on him and Richard Foster because these two were quoted the most in the study. He was, along with Richard Foster, one of the most prominent teachers on the spiritual disciplines. Willard, until his death in 2013, headed a ministry with Foster on spiritual formation called Renovere. In Enjoying Jesus' Week 1, Day 3, Under Jesus and the Disciples, they quote Dallas Willard to describe the reason why we should practice spiritual disciplines. Quote, as Dallas Willard puts it, in this truth lies the secret of the easy yoke. The secret involves living as he lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his overall lifestyle, following in his steps, cannot be equated with behaving as he did when he was on the spot. To live as Christ lived is to live as he did all his life. End quote. Here's Dallas Willard's teaching on the easy yoke in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines. Quote, My central claim is that we can become like Christ by doing one thing, by following him in the overall style of life he chose for himself, if we have faith in Christ, we must believe that He knew how to live. We can, through faith and grace, become like Christ by practicing the types of activities He engaged in, by arranging our whole lives around the activities He Himself practiced in order to remain constantly at home in the fellowship of His Father. End quote. Dallas Willard, The Spirit of the Disciplines, page 113. Now, I tackle this argument in the first episode critiquing the Enjoying Jesus study, when Lauren Chandler made the claim that because Jesus needed the disciplines, how much more do we need them? Really quickly, I'll state this. Christ did more than the mere spiritual disciplines to consecrate himself to God. He also performed every Jewish law given to the Israelites from God. If we can become like Christ through the activities he engaged in, Shouldn't Dallas Willard teach that all males should be circumcised? What about the practice of not eating selfish or pig? Or what about performing miracles or walking on water and calming the storms? Why wouldn't practicing those make us like Christ as well? Jesus kept over 600 laws, all in relation to fellowship with God, either through cleansing laws, separation laws, or moral law. Again, there's... Two problems I see with this teaching, one, that Jesus had to practice something in order to remain constantly in fellowship with the Father, this undermines the fact that Jesus and the Father were one, not through the practice of disciplines, but in being. He was both fully God and fully man, and the way he lived was lived, because he was God in flesh and was the perfect spotless Lamb. This was his purpose, to live perfectly and to be the sacrifice for our sins. The other problem is this, that Dallas Willard is not being consistent. He's picking certain practices to practice and rejecting others while teaching that the easy yoke is the resolve to live as Jesus lived in all aspects of his life. More on this easy yoke. Quote, the secret of the easy yoke, then, is to learn from Christ how to live our total lives, how to invest all our time and our energies of mind and body as he did. We must learn how to follow his preparations, the disciplines for life and God's rule that enabled him to receive his Father's constant and effective support while doing his will. End quote. Dallas Willard, The Spirit of the Disciplines, page 344. And another quote, The secret of the easy yoke is simple, actually. It's the intelligent, informed, unyielding resolve to live as Jesus lived in all aspects of his life, not just in the moment of specific choice or action. End quote. Dallas Willard, The Spirit of the Disciplines, page 348. Before I dive into Mr. Willard's teaching on God, man, sin, and salvation, let's tackle this by correcting this twisting of his use of yoke. Bob DeWay, from the Critical Issues Commentary Ministry, wrote an article on their website looking at the teachings of Dallas Willard in his book titled The Spirit of the Disciplines, the same book being quoted in this if-equipped study. Mr. Dewey sets the record straight on what Jesus meant by taking his yoke. I'll be reading a large portion of his article. Quote, If we want to understand Matthew 11, 29, and 30. It's essential that we understand the context, particularly the meaning of verse 28. Jesus said, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11:28. 28. We must understand Jesus' offer of rest in the context of his debates with the religious leaders. Their yoke demanded the strict observance of Sabbath rules and their oral tradition. Immediately after Jesus' offer of rest in him, there ensued a Sabbath debate with the religious leaders accusing Jesus and his disciples of being Sabbath breakers, see Matthew 12. They plucked grain on the Sabbath, and Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Jesus was offering true Sabbath rest, and the Jewish leaders were offering the yoke of the law. Jesus' yoke was different. Jesus perfectly kept the law so that all who would come to him would enter into the true Sabbath rest that could never be achieved by keeping the rules laid down by the religious leaders. Taking this understanding of the term yoke, we can see what Jesus meant in Matthew 11. His words came in the middle of a dispute with Jewish leadership. He had pronounced woe upon the cities that did not repent, Matthew 1120 20-24, he uttered this prayer. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent, and didst reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in thy sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the sign except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Matthew eleven twenty five to 27 The wise and intelligent were the Jewish scribes and Pharisees, who accused Ju- Jesus of being a Sabbath-breaker, and who refused to repent when they witnessed His miracles. They rejected both Jesus and John the Baptist in a most fickle manner. Matthew eleven sixteen 16-9 They refused to come to God on His terms, but demanded that God the Son obey them on their terms. So Jesus pronounced the judgment of hardening on them and chose instead to reveal himself to babes. When Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Matthew eleven twenty-eight, he was offering them what the Jewish leadership rejected, messianic salvation. True Sabbath rest is only found in Christ. See Hebrews 4, 1-9. Ironically, the people who accused Jesus of being a Sabbath-breaker were the ultimate Sabbath-breakers because they rejected the only one who could give to rest. They put the yoke of law-keeping on the people but kept them from the one true law-keeper, Christ, who died for their sins. Therefore, no matter how scrupulous and religious a person is, if he or she does not come to Christ by faith, that person is under the yoke of bondage rather than the Sabbath rest for the people of God. There are other places in the New Testament where the term yoke is used in the sense of of the requirement of law-keeping. Two of them are very pertinent to interpreting Matthew eleven twenty to 30 In Acts 15, the apostles gathered in Jerusalem to determine whether the new Gentile converts would be required to keep the law. The three most prominent laws that marked off the Jews as unique were the food laws, Sabbath, and circumcision. Peter's speech convinced the apostles that the Gentiles were not obliged to follow such Jewish laws. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows a heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the necks of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Acts 15 7 11. The yoke was being under the law. Now consider how Paul used the same term. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Galatians 5 1. The Judaizers wanted to put Christians under obligation to be circumcised, and Paul called this a yoke of slavery. Therefore, Our conclusion is that in Matthew 11, Jesus was offering salvation to all who come to him. Now let us examine Willard's claim that Jesus was telling people to try to emulate his lifestyle. Willard claims that we are failing to practice the disciplines that would make us able to live better lives and that most Christians are failing to live lives pleasing to God. He further states that the solution is that we practice spiritual disciplines that are based on Jesus' lifestyle and supplemented by practices of the medieval Catholic Church. So he sees Jesus' yoke as an offer to take up a lifestyle that will make us better people rather than an offer of true Sabbath rest through Christ's finished work on the cross. This is tantamount to substituting works for grace and making Jesus an ethical teacher whose example can be followed rather than the unique Son of God who alone always does the things that please the Father." Quote. And this is exactly what Dallas Willard taught, and that is because of what he believed about God, Jesus Christ, man, sin, and salvation. Now, I'll make this as brief as I can using his own claims, but let's look at what he teaches about these. Dallas Willard teaches that the second person of the Trinity is in creation, in the cosmos, and what he identifies as the cosmic Christ. Now, Richard Rohr, the de facto theologian on the Enneagram, teaches about this cosmic Christ, which is this substance or what they term the Logos word. This substance or essence or Christ has its first incarnation in the beginning of creation. Now, I haven't heard or read Dallas Willard make that same claim in regards to Christ being first incarnated in creation, but he certainly teaches that the cosmic Christ lives in all. He teaches that Jesus, also being the cosmic Christ, came to reveal to us how we can live in new life or how we can be born from above. In fact, he believes that one could be saved through being led by the cosmic Christ even apart from the work of Jesus. In an article from the Cutting Edge magazine, the author asked Dallas to role-play an evangelistic conversation with Cutting Edge playing as a 20-year-old girl who grew up in a Christian home, but finds her worldview challenged when she goes to college. Now, I thought I would make this fun, so I asked my loving husband to play the part of Dallas Willard while I play the college girl. Listen in. You know, I've read the Gospels, and I think that Jesus was the greatest teacher there ever was. In fact, I'd like to live my life like him, but it feels like I have to buy an awful lot more.
0: Well, what I would say is this. You don't have to buy anything you don't want. We have to help people understand that belief is something that comes along as you experience. You don't have to fake anything. The way faith works is this. You put into practice that which you believe. If you're attracted to Jesus, what do you believe about him that you can act on? Experience shows us again and again that when you allow people to act on the little that they do believe, the rest will follow.
1: But I still struggle with how I should view those who have other beliefs. I'm not sure I'm ready to condemn them as wrong. I know some very good Buddhists. What is their destiny?
0: What Paul is clearly saying is that if anyone is worthy of being saved, they will be saved. At that point, many Christians get very anxious, saying that absolutely no one is worthy of being saved. The implication of that is that a person can be almost totally good, but miss the message about Jesus and be sent to hell. What kind of a God would do that? I'm not going to stand in the way of anybody whom God wants to save. I'm not going to say he can't save them. I'm happy for God to save anybody he wants in any way he can. It is possible for someone who does not know Jesus to be saved. But anyone who is going to be saved is going to be saved by Jesus. There is no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved.
1: Now this caused quite a bit of confusion, so Willard clarifies his statement, adding a later addendum.
0: In my opinion, anyone who is saved will be saved i.e. enter heaven, pass the judgment. Because the one we know as Jesus, who is also the cosmic Christ or Logos, has reached out to them and brought them in. They will no more merit this than do those of us who know the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.6 It is not a question of earning anything, but of receiving something, which is a proper type of attitude or act, whether in us or in them, as judged by the God whose eyes move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his, Second Chronicles sixteen nine, and is seeking worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth, John 4, 24.
1: Notice he's basically saying that people can be saved by the cosmic Christ. Not through faith in the historic Jesus who paid the propitiation for our sins, but saved through this receiving of the cosmic Christ and being led by it, causing us to walk as Jesus walked. But notice that in his clarification, he implies that this cosmic Christ can be known as something other than Jesus. We know him as Jesus, but others may know him as something else. They are not saved by believing in Jesus as their sacrifice for sins, but by receiving a proper type of attitude or act that is judged by God to come from a heart that is completely His and worships Him in spirit and truth, twisting the Second Chronicles and John verse to make them apply to people with Buddhist faith. Even Christianity Today understands Willard's teaching on the cosmic Christ as the way to salvation. Listen again to my wonderful husband as he quotes W.J. Wood from his book review of Knowing Christ Today, Why We Can Trust Spiritual Knowledge by Dallas Willard.
0: I also found Willard's defense of Christian pluralism compelling. His pluralism is grounded in the generosity, love, and work of the eternal word Logos, the cosmic Christ who has come into the world to enlighten all persons. Willard affirms that all have sinned and that no one merits heaven apart from the atoning work of Christ. But he denies that to benefit from Christ's work, one must have explicit knowledge of the historical Jesus, or that one must have all one's doctrinal P's and Q's in order. Some Christians, says Willard, display the outward, identifiable marks of the faith, Baptism, church membership, having prayed to receive Christ, having received the sacraments, but lack a heart of true devotion. On the other hand, any who lack those recognizable marks but have the inward heart God looks for is acceptable to God, no matter in what other ways they may or may not be identifiable.
1: So far, we've learned from Mr. Willard that God resides within us through the cosmic Christ. That one can be saved not through the belief in a historical Jesus paying for our sins, but a Jesus that was indwelt by the cosmic Christ who enlightens all persons. Jesus is only important in so much as he accomplished walking perfectly with God and showed us how to walk in connection with this cosmic Christ that enlightens us. He teaches that the gospel is the good news of the kingdom of God and that Christ died for our sins but Salvation comes by trusting in Jesus as the one who showed you how to live in complete union with God and His kingdom. This is what He calls atonement. In a message titled "The Gospel Jesus Taught and the Atonement," Mr. Willard states this:
2: It was Jesus who was raised from the dead. See, that's the deal. Jesus was raised from the dead, and when He rose up from the dead, He confirmed everything He had said about the kingdom of God. And everyone said, it's all true, and they threw their lives into it. And that's the understanding of the atonement that we have to come to. If you want to understand atonement, read 2 Corinthians 4, for example. And what Paul says, we are always bearing about in our bodies the death of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be manifested in them. See, that's atonement. We all know how you break that word down. At one month. At one month. That's atonement. I'm bearing about in my body the death of the Lord Jesus. How do I do that? Well, one of the things is I offer it up as a living sacrifice. Now, how do I do that? I learn how to live in such a way that I act with God, with God, with God.
1: This is the same teaching that Richard Ward teaches on the atonement, stating it as at one mint, quoting second Corinthians, saying atonement is always living as Christ offering our bodies up as living sacrifice, and that atonement and the spiritual life are one thing. This use of the word makes the atonement our work in becoming unified with God, our spiritual formation or transformation. Now, he is using the English word for atonement to make a claim about Christ's work in salvation. The English definition means reparation for offense or injury. Reconciliation of God and humankind. Using this definition for atonement makes Christ's work a mere example and teaches one exactly what Willard and Rohr teach that we, through spiritual disciplines, become more unified with the cosmic Christ within all of us, forming a spiritually in new life in the kingdom of God. But the word for atonement is the Hebrew word kafar, which means to cover or propitiate, Jesus' blood covers our sin and propitiates our guilt, fully satisfying the demands of God, averting the wrath of God through an offering or gift. Willard completely rejects that Jesus was sent forth to be a propitiation for our sins. He rejects that Jesus was sent to avert the wrath of God against all those who would receive him by faith. Instead, the atonement becomes our work. He took Romans 12, 1, out of context to make it a work that you are to offer up your bodies to be at one with God to walk in His kingdom. This verse states it very differently. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Romans 12 1 2. This verse is stating that we offer up our bodies because of God's mercy, not to become in union with God. It is done as an act of worship, one resulting from our thankfulness to God for His mercy. It's not done to get something. And how is it that we offer up our bodies? By performing spiritual disciplines? No, by renewing our mind so we may be able to test and approve what God's will is. Now, I listened to this whole message. And in that message, there was no proclamation that we are sinners in the hands of of an angry God, that we are born children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3, nor that our hearts are dece- deceitfully wicked, Jeremiah 17.9, no proclamation of a need for a righteousness that is completely apart from our own, or a faith that rests on the penal substitutionary sacrifice of a Messiah on the cross, but a different gospel, where one walks in a faith that believes Jesus' life was the example as the perfect teacher in unity with God. So I had to ask, if Jesus' death was not a propitiation for sins, then what does Mr. Willard believe about the cross? In a question and answer session, at the end of the lecture, steps forward with grace into real progress and Christlikeness in real life, Mr. Willard states his teaching on what happened at the cross after being asked to reframe the cross in light of what he taught in the class. Listen to this clip.
0: So you, you reframed, I guess, in some ways, the righteousness of God.
2: That's right.
0: right? And, and I get what you're saying, you know, it's His goodness in making life available to people. The, the thing that, that I wrestle with coming out of my own, you know, theological background is that, you know, the cross is so central, especially in the first yes. version. So reframe the cross.
2: The cross is central. So in, let me in say that. that and no, no question I, I'm
0: not. It. I'm not accusing you, but I'm saying reframe the cross within this reframing of the righteousness of yeah. God that you've said.
2: Right. The question is what happened at the cross. Exactly. And uh, the interpretation that gives you salvation without transformation says, what you deserved was actually suffered by Jesus. And so you're off the hook to put it bluntly, no. And the uh, uh, understanding of the necessity of the cross is what is at issue here. So let me just gently suggest the cross could have been necessary without it have served the function of taking our beating. And I think that in fact that is it. Jesus chose the cross and he indicated that he and his father had had this little talk where they said this is the way to go, is the cross. Why did he choose the cross? He said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. That was his way of reaching out to the world on the cross. And that is probably still true that the most widely understood symbol other than Coca-Cola is the cross. Now, what did it mean? It had profound meanings essential to his project of giving his life to the world. It meant that he gave up his life to carry through with his mission. It meant a lot of other things because he purposely chose this as a way of involving the responsible people, the Roman government on the one hand and the Jewish authorities on the other. He wanted everyone to know what happened to him
1: So he rejects the function of the cross as being where God poured out his wrath, where our propitiation or payment for sin was made, but that its main function was to draw man's attention. How does it do that? Here's his clarification.
2: So it's really important for us to think this through now. And now the cross becomes a revelation of the love of God, which is His righteousness. The righteousness of the God of God is the love of God, not His holding sternly to the law. See, that's how that's presented. As if God would not be righteous if He did not see to it that people who needed to be punished got punished. His righteousness is His love, and that's why Romans five eight says, "God commends His love towards us." That's what the cross did. It recommends God's love. It says, hey guys, you want to see something different? <laughs> Here it is. That's the message of the cross.
1: So instead of Christ redeeming us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Curses everyone who is hanged on a tree, Galatians 3, 13. Instead of him taking our sin upon himself, 1 Peter two twenty four, and the wrath of God being poured out upon him, Isaiah 53, 10, Jesus goes to the cross to show you just how much he loves you and is willing to carry out his mission to express his love through giving up his life to death by crucifixion. It's reduced to displaying God's righteousness and love through Jesus' submission to dying on the cross. And so again, we see Jesus is merely an example that his death is just an example as well. Bottom line, Dallas Willard teaches a panentheistic view of God who sent his son to be our example as one who works with the cosmic Christ in revealing the new life that is lived in the kingdom of heaven on earth. He rejects the penal substitutionary atoning work of Christ's death on the cross and instead teaches Jesus' death on the cross was an example of a man who had submitted himself to whatever death God and Jesus decided upon. Why the cross? Because it draws people's attention. It shows people just how much God loves them. We are saved or are brought into heaven by taking on Jesus' easy yoke, submitting ourselves to the spiritual disciplines as they bring us to hear God and follow his subjective word. Different God, different Jesus, different cross, different salvation equals a different gospel entirely. Now, if you want to know more about what Dallas Willard teaches, especially about the way to salvation, I provide in the show notes a link to Chris Roseborough's podcast, Fighting for the Faith. At about the one hour eight mark, Mr. Roseborough plays several clips of Dallas Willard answering tough questions at the end of a conference. Mr. Roseborough does a great job addressing his answers and looking at them to answer this question. Is Dallas Willard a Christian? I highly suggest you check that out for further research. Now let's look at Richard Foster. Richard Foster, known as a Christian theologian in the Quaker tradition, is quoted many times in this study. In week 3, day 1, on meditation, in week 5, day 3, on solitude, and week 6, day 1, on simplicity. I believe the reason Richard Foster is the most quoted in the studies is because he's probably one of the most popular Christian mystics in evangelicalism today. His book, Celebration of Disciplines, The Path to Spiritual Growth, written in the early 1970s, is probably the most widely read book on the disciplines. First, just a bit about Quakerism. Full stop, the Quaker God is panentheistic. They teach that all men have the divine presence and can receive direct revelation from God. David Cloud from Way of Life Literature in an article titled Richard Foster Evangelical Spark Plug explains Foster's Quaker tradition this way, Quote, the Quaker connection is important because one of their peculiar doctrines is direct revelation via an inner light. This is defined in a variety of ways, since Quakerism is very individualistic and non-creedal, but it refers to a divine presence and guidance in every man. There is an emphasis on being still and silent and passive in order to receive guidance from the inner light. Other terms for it are light of God, light of Christ, inward light, the light, light within, Christ within, and spirit of Christ. George Fox, used the expression, that of God in everyone. In his journal, Fox said, I was glad that I was commanded to turn people to that inward light, spirit, and grace, by which all might know their salvation and their way to God. Even that divine spirit, which would lead them into all truth, and which I infallibly knew would never deceive any." The Journal of George Fox, revised by John Nichols, 1952, page 35. In fact, this is the major problem with Foster's teaching. If Equips Enjoying Jesus quotes Foster on Christian meditation As Richard Foster says, in celebration of discipline, Christian meditation, very simply, is the ability to hear God's voice and obey His word. That was from week 3, day 1. But the more you dive into his teaching, the more you learn of a God who is different than the God of Scripture, one that even rejects the sufficiency of Christ's work and the sufficiency of Scripture to thoroughly equip us for life and godliness. Like all mystics, Foster teaches that God resides within creation, whether you call it the inner light, the cosmic Christ, the divine spirit, etc. It's just plain old panentheism. Just like Willard, Mr. Foster teaches that Christ's work on the cross was not a penal substitutionary sacrifice, one of Christ receiving the just payment due to us, but merely a receiving of the sins of the whole world to open the whole world to receive God's love and forgiveness. Quote, at the heart of God is a desire to give and to forgive. Because of this, he sent into motion the entire redemptive process that culminated in the cross and was confirmed in the resurrection. The usual notion of what Jesus did on the cross was something like this. People were so bad and so mean and God was so angry with them that he could not forgive them unless somebody big enough took the rap for the whole lot of them. Nothing could be further from the truth. Love, not anger, brought Jesus to the cross. Golgotha came as a result of God's great desire to forgive, not his reluctance. Jesus knew that by his vicarious suffering, he could actually absorb all the evil of humanity and so heal it, forgive it, redeem it. Quote. Richard Foster, Celebration of Discipline, the Path to Spiritual Growth. And like Dallas Willard, Foster teaches we must have new life and live in the kingdom of heaven by the use of spiritual disciplines. Quote, the disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so that he can transform us. The inner righteousness we seek is not something that is poured on our heads. God has ordained the disciplines of the spiritual life as the means by which we place ourselves where he can bless us. End quote. Richard Foster, The Celebration of Discipline. Instead of the transformation being the starting point in which God graciously gives an individual a new heart with his law written on it, Ezekiel 36, 26. And with this new heart, one is also given faith in Christ, Ephesians 2, 8-9, 2 Peter 1, 1, and Philippians 1, 29. Instead of these being the means by which we now can come to God as our Father, one must work with God in the process of transformation by placing ourselves before God through the practice of the disciplines. Faith in Christ's work is not sufficient to bring us to God. Neither are we declared righteous by faith in Christ's work, but we must also place ourselves within these disciplines where God can bless us with his righteousness. Christ's atoning work on the cross was not sufficient to make us righteous and only opened the doorway to the kingdom of God. We must work with God and the inner light or cosmic Christ to be in union with God and as We are in union with God through meditation, silence, contemplative prayer, solitude, etc. God will equip us with righteousness. The spiritual disciplines are how we bring in this kingdom, and each person's way of coming to God changes over time, depending on their experience. Quote, The spiritual disciplines are ways by which we place ourselves before God. Whatever ushers us into the Holy of Holies is proper and right for us to engage in. In my discussions, I have tried to concentrate on those spiritual disciplines which are universal. They are for all Christians at all times. There are certain other specific experiences and ways of coming before God that particular individuals will take up at particular times. We must let Christ be our ever-present teacher to show us how we can learn better to walk with Him. Side note, this is referencing the personal subjective cosmic Christ or inner light, not the objective teachings of a historical person found in the writings of Scripture, but continuing on in the quote. There is a perennial temptation to confine Christ as we describe his workings with his children. The way he comes to us today will probably be different than the way he came to us yesterday, and tomorrow will be different from today. We must always be sensitive to these movements so we do not confine the Holy Spirit. No description of the spiritual disciplines exhausts the way God works. He will probably teach us spiritual exercises which nobody has written anywhere. End quote. From Richard Foster, an article titled The Danger of Spiritual Disciplines on Renovere.org. Note that this means that Christ can reveal himself to people in different ways and that we can place ourselves before God in whatever way brings us into a subjective experience that we decide. Who is to say that God is not found in a Buddhist experience or a Hindu meditation? The cosmic Christ is not limited to God's revealed will in Scripture. Therefore, Scripture is not needed. All right, so we've looked at the three Christian mystics most quoted in this study, who happen to be men, the next and final two mystics that we will address are women. The first is Julian of Norwich, who was an English mystic and an anchoress of the Middle Ages. Her writings, now known as Revelations of Divine Love, written between the 14th and 15th centuries, is known as a book of mystical devotions. Julian wrote of 16 mystical visions she received in 1373. It is from this book that the Enjoying Jesus quote her to talk about the study of God's word. Quote, 14th century English mystic Gillian of Norwich understood that study of God's word leads directly to adoration of God. Truth perceives God and wisdom contemplates God. From those two comes the third and that is a holy, wonderful, delight in God, which is love. That was from week three, day four on study. But we must understand that the quote they used to make the statement that Jillian makes here is in reference to the truth she claims to receive through these visions. In fact, the quote truth she is stating is from the revelations she received subjectively, not the truth found in scripture. In a Patheos article from December 16, 2013, Dan Wilkinson writes how Jillian's teachings are at odds with the patriarchal church today. Quote, In Julian's writings, we find the foundations of feminist theology, a hopeful universalism, and an understanding of God as pure love. Hers is a radically optimistic theology. In the words of this 14th century mystic, we find ideas that the modern Christian church and indeed all of humanity would do well to heed. Conceiving of God in a way that is decidedly at odds with the patriarchal, institutional church, a church consumed by legalism and penitence and punishment, Jillian struggles to reconcile her plague and poverty-ridden world with the divine beauty and mercy that has been revealed to her. This universal, timeless question, how can God, who is the very embodiment of love, allow sin and suffering into the world? Julian finds her answer in the promise of Jesus in chapter 27, one of the most famous lines from her writings. But Jesus, who in this vision had informed me of all that I needed, answered with these words saying, Sin is necessary, but all shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. Julian is assured that God will reconcile all things to him and that, Though we may suffer now, and though we inevitably find ourselves sinning, God does respond with anger and judgment, but rather with love. In chapter 46 she writes, And thus in all this beholding I thought I needed to see and know that we are sinners who do many evil things that we ought to avoid, and leave many good deeds undone that we ought to do, so that we deserve both pain and wrath. And notwithstanding all this, I saw quite plainly that our Lord was never wroth, nor ever shall be, for he is God. He is good, he is life, he is truth, he is love, he is peace, while his charity and his unity suffers him not to be wrath. For Julian, God's love for his or her creation isn't arbitrary. Sorry, I just... (laughs) Progressive Christianity. It isn't in spite of our sin and shortcomings, rather, it's because He has made us as we are and rejoices in us for who we are. From chapter 67. What could make us rejoice more than to see that God rejoices in us? I realized that if the Blessed Trinity could have made the human soul any better, any more beautiful, with any more dignity than it was made, he would not have been wholly satisfied. As it is, he created our soul to be as lovely, as good, and as precious as he could make it. And so he is endlessly pleased with us. He wants our hearts to be lifted above the depths of this world and all the empty sorrows we suffer here and rejoice in God. A side note, I don't recommend reading Pathos articles as they are progressive in their view of Christianity, but that is exactly why I wanted to quote them to show you how Julian of Norwich's teaching produced progressive Christian theology. That is where all of this mysticism leads. It is what the teachers proclaimed as spiritual masters in If Equips Enjoying Jesus Study actually teach. Another so-called truth taught in her revelations of love is that God is our Mother. It is a characteristic of God to overcome evil with good. Jesus Christ, therefore, whom Himself overcame evil with good, is our True Mother. We receive our being from Him, and this is where His maternity starts, and with it comes the gentle protection and guard of love, which will never cease to surround us. Just as God is our Father, so God is also our Mother. And He showed me this truth in all things, but especially in those sweet words when He says, It is I. As if to say, I am the power and the goodness of the Father. I am the wisdom of the Mother. I am the light and the grace, which is blessed love. I am the Trinity. I am the unity. I am the supreme goodness of all kinds of things. I am the one who makes you love. I am the one who makes you desire. I am the never-ending fulfillment of all true desires. Our Highest Father, God Almighty, who is Being, has always known us and loved us. Because of this knowledge, through His marvelous and deep charity and with the unanimous consent of the Blessed Trinity, He wanted the second person to become our Mother, our Brother, our Savior. It is thus logical that God, being our Father, be also our Mother. Our Father desires, our Mother operates, and our good Lord, the Holy Ghost confirms. We are thus well advised to love our God through whom we have our being, to thank Him reverently and to praise Him for having created us, and to pray fervently to our Mother so as to obtain mercy and compassion, and to pray to our Lord, the Holy Ghost, to obtain help and grace. End quote. Jillian of Norwich, Revelation of Divine Love, pages 59 and 88. If you can hear the sarcasm in my voice, I'm sorry. I'm very frustrated at this point. But, again, these teachings that downplay sin and exalting of God's love at the expense of his wrath that all can come to God apart from Jesus the Christ, and now not only God as being Father, but Christ is Mother as well. But this should not be surprising. You'll find that many female mystics describe God as Mother. It stems from looking within and thinking that God is like us. Let's look at our last mystic. Ruth Haley Barton. Who is Ruth Haley Barton? Ruth Haley Barton is founding president and CEO of the Transforming Center, a ministry dedicated to strengthening the souls of pastors and Christian leaders. Trained at the Shalem Institute for Spiritual Formation and the Institute for Pastoral Studies, Loyola University, Chicago, she is a retreat leader and a spiritual director. A sought-after speaker and preacher, she has served on the pastoral staff of several churches and teaches frequently at seminaries and graduate schools. Ruth is the author of numerous books and resources on the spiritual life, including Invitation to Solitude and Silence, Sacred Rhythms, Longing for More, Pursuing God's Will Together, and Life Together in Christ. So not only does she claim to be pastor— She is a pastor of pastors. Not only does she desire to have authority over men, but have authority over those who have authority over men. This immediately is a huge red flag. If you haven't already listened to the TE episode in uh, in Addressing Female Pastors, feel free to refer to that to see the problem with that. Ruth Haley Barden is quoted on week 4, day 4, on the Sabbath. As adults, our souls long for rest. No matter our age, Sabbath brings rest, and rest brings joy. As author Ruth Haley Barden puts it, Sabbath keeping helps us to live within our limits because on the Sabbath, in many different ways, we allow ourselves to be the creature in the presence of our Creator. We touch something more real in ourselves and others than what any of us is able to produce. We touch our very being in God. Now, this very quote connects the something more real in ourselves and in others with, quote, our very being in God. At first glance, we would look at that and say, well, that is true, but what does Miss Barton teach about this something more real in ourselves? Quote, deep within us all, there is an amazing inner sanctuary of the soul, a divine center, a speaking voice to which we may continually return. End quote. Ruth Haley Barton, Spiritual Realms, page 121 to 122. So this reality within ourselves, what she describes as our true inner self. And notice she said that this is an amazing inner sanctuary of the soul is within all of us. This is a common teaching in her books and her podcasts. In her book, Imitation to Solitude and Silence, with the foreword written by Dallas Willard, she talks about the true self. Quote, The concept of the true self and the false self is a consistent theme not only in Scripture, but also in the writings of the church fathers and mothers. Thomas Merton and Henry Newen, particularly Newen's The Way of the Heart, and Father Thomas Keating, are contemporary authors who have shaped my understanding of this aspect of spiritual life. This is a way of identifying the false part of ourselves that relies on deeply patterned and often unconscious self-protective barriers developed in response to the presence of sin and wounding within and all around us. Spiritual transformation involves peeling back the layers of the false self in order to reveal the true authentic self. End quote. Barton, Imitation to Silence and Solitude, page 160. This authentic, true self is the inner nature of man. This nature is not one that rejects God, but is, in fact, the very opposite. If we dig deep into our desires, we will find that at the heart of all man's desire is really a desire for God. Quote, In the end, the human soul will choose what it most wants. If we are brave enough to stay with this experience of wanting something we do not yet have, we discover that underneath all other desire is a desire for God, for love, for the true belonging, End quote. Barton Invitation to Solitude and Silence, page 161. This is the typical mystical panantheistic view of man. The presence of sin is outside of ourselves, and in response to it we develop unconscious self-protective barriers, or our false self. We are really good inside, desiring God, but this world and others prevent us from knowing our true selves. Spiritual formation is making use of the spiritual practices that will pull you away from this world and allow you to, quote, peel back the layers of the false self in order to reveal the true self, end quote. By now, you should be able to recognize the major teachings of mysticism. The most foundational of them all is this panentheistic view of God residing in all creation and within all people, is the divine, the true self, etc. This God has many names and one finds him by looking within. We should also understand by now that mystics have a high view of man, that he is really good deep inside, but is wounded, sick, or just struggling with sin. Miss Barton sees man no differently. Quote, your desire for more of God than you have right now, your longing for love, your need for deeper levels of spiritual transformation that you have experienced so far is the truest thing about you. You might think that your woundedness or your sinfulness is the truest thing about you or that your giftedness or your personality type or your job title or your identity as husband or wife or mother or father somehow defines you. But in reality, it is your desire for God and your capacity to reach for more of God than you have right now that is the deepest essence of who you are. Quote. Barton, Sacred Rhythms, Arranging Our Lives for, for Spiritual Transformation Miss Barton completely rejects that our sinful nature is the truest thing about us. We are not born children of wrath, Ephesians 2-3 where even sin permeates our righteous acts so much that they are filthy menstrual rags to God, Isaiah 64, 6. Now, in the innermost part of our essence is the divine center, one that desires God. Again, we simply need to spend time performing the disciplines so that we can get in touch with our real selves where God resides. Well, there is a lot more that I can go into with the teachings presented by the spiritual masters quoted in the if Equip, study, uh, if Equip Enjoying Jesus study, I think this is enough to at least make you wonder about what kind of God Jenny Allen is promoting through her If Ministry. The falsehood that these masters teach lead one to trust in a false god, false Jesus, and false gospel. But this is what happens when you believe that you can find truth about God and man in created things and subjective experiences apart from scripture. Ladies, do you believe, like the Enjoying Jesus study, that you need to do certain things to become close to God? Do you try to listen to inner impressions to be guided and make decisions? An even more deeper question to ask is this. Do you rely on those experiences to have faith? Are those experiences the way you confirm God's love to you? I think this is one reason why someone is quick to reject presentations like this. The experience is how they know that God is okay with them. Instead of simply believing that God is pleased with you through Jesus Christ because he has said that he is in scripture, do you need something else to help you believe do you use things like the spiritual disciplines to help you connect with God, or do you look for subjective revelation to affirm His connection? Ladies, Christ is sufficient. He did all that was needed to remove all barriers between us and the Father. He gives us His righteousness, 2 Corinthians five twenty one, died, putting to death our sin, Hebrews ten ten was raised again for our justification. Romans 4:25 and gives us the spirit who intercedes for us, Romans 8:26 who gives life to our mortal bodies, Romans 8:11, and bears witness that we are children of God, who call God Father, Romans 8:14 to16. Jesus accomplished all to connect you to God. Go to scripture, meditate, and believe in the gospel and trust in those promises and who God is. God's divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who calls you to his own glory and excellence. Believe in these things, ladies. Trust in the gospel. And so I pray you are in His Word. Ladies, if you are interested in the transcript for this episode, you can go to ttew.org. You can find other great resources, articles, blogs, and videos that may bless you in your Christian walk as well as links to follow me on social media. If you wish to contact me, you can email me at thoroughlyequipped316 at gmail.com. Again, the website address is ttew.org. Thoroughly Equipped is part of Striving for Eternity's Christian podcast community. Striving for Eternity is a Christ-centered ministry focused on equipping people for Eternity by assisting Christians to have an eternal perspective on life. They strive to bring evangelism, discipleship, apologetics, and Christian living together for the purpose of eternal preparation by exalting God, edifying and equipping the saints, and evangelizing the lost. They provide speakers, online articles, online courses, books, podcasts, and other theological resources all centered on God's Word. To find out more, go to strivingforeternity.org. And to listen to other podcasts, go to podcast.strivingforeternity.org. I pray that their resources bless you as they have blessed me as we live our lives day by day praising and glorifying God.